Welcome to part two of the Medieval Castle series. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly encourage you to do so as the episodes move in chronological order. In part one, we learned of some of the earliest forms of castles during the Middle Ages and how they had started to evolve. Now, hear about the stone castle and how it continued to be enhanced to present even deadlier barriers to its enemies. It is time for Medieval Castles, part two. Hello, and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. Stone keeps were constructed in a way that each level or floor would have its own purpose. Let's dive into what would be a pretty standard layout of what exactly was inside the structure of the keep. The ground level would be closed off by a thick wall and would be unreachable except by an entrance from the floor above. Remember earlier on in episode 1, we had discussed the defensive strategy where the keeps placed their entranceways on the second level. This meant the ground level was actually below the level of the entrance to the structure. Because it was built into the earthen framework and had thick walls fully enclosing the area, the first floor was a great area to place stores of food for the garrison. Historically, people used the natural earth cooling system to keep food preserved for extended periods. Because of the low level and being blocked away from the heat sources, the storeroom at ground level was a great spot where food products could remain chilled and would take longer to spoil or rot. Another type of room well suited to this type of area was the dungeon. Since the only way out of the first floor was by using the exit to the floor above, there was no easy way for prisoners to formulate an easy type of escape. The first floor was essentially the second level, would have the entranceway which was usually comprised of a thick wooden door that could be barred from the inside. Some keeps even used drawbridges that they could pull up and seal when the enemy was near, but would lay open and accessible for their own troops when needed. The first floor usually consisted of a room to support the garrison's living quarters. They would usually have access to a fireplace for warmth and waste facilities to take care of their business. The bathroom of the time was usually a wooden or stone box with a circular hole cut in it. Through the hole, the waste would flow and either dump into a giant cesspit or be let off an opening in the side of the castle wall and fall to the ground. Not exactly the cleanliest or most hygienic picture of a bathroom facility, especially when you realize it is not just for one or two people, but helps serve the entire garrison. If the bad guys breached the entrance to the keep, they would find themselves on this first floor with all the heavily armed men in front of them. A defensive feature that can be found in many of the stone castles in Europe is the spiral staircase. In a typical keep, a spiral staircase would be the only method of ascending through the tower to get to the other levels. This allowed the defenders to create a choke point where attackers would have to funnel their efforts and they could be more easily thwarted by the garrison. If you look closely at the spiral steps winding up and around and around and around in a circle, in most of the castle of the time period, one thing is notable. The stairs wind around in a clockwise fashion. You take one step up and shift slightly to your right. You take another step up and once more to the right. And you wind upwards and onwards to the top. 
Through the center of the stairs on your right side is the base cylinder for the foundation of the stairwell where each step is secured. Most people in the world are right-handed. The defenders knew this and they constructed the stairwell so that if an attacker tried to swing their sword with their right hand, the stone column in the center that supported the staircase would be directly in their way. They wouldn't be able to get a full swing in without hitting straight into the stone. This greatly restricted their movement and the attacks that they could perform while standing in the stairwell. The defender, who would be already in a higher position in the tower giving them an advantage, they would be going down the steps to beat the enemy back. Now think of his position. He has a stone column in the center to his left, an open room of the stairwell on his right. While he is pushing back the attackers as they fight up the staircase, he can brace his strong metal shield against the middle column of the stairs, while at the same time swinging his sword on the right upon the poor souls below. A distinct advantage is gained by the men on the higher point in the tower, and since there was only one way up and down the inside of the keep, it would almost always be the defenders. Defensive fortifications such as castles sought to find as many small advantages that they could provide to their garrison or hinder the enemy, and it was the cumulative effect of all of these small perks that led to castles being so formidable. Another nice feature for engineers using spiral staircases was, think of the space that it occupied. A spiral staircase was one upwardly cylinder-like structure going straight to the top of the tower and did not take up much room. Think of today's stairwells, metro station entrances, fire exits, and the like. Think of how much room they take up when the stairs have to go straight down in a gradually descending line or go back and forth in rectangular or square patterns. This greatly increases the floor coverage of using the stairwell as an access point and the spiral staircase eliminates some of the required real estate for vertical navigation throughout the tower. The second floor of the keeps usually contain the great hall and banquet area, a chapel and possibly a kitchen. This is where the lord of the castle would conduct his meetings and entertain his guests. Each level would have some form of a bathroom usually called a gorda robe that would be accessible for the people on that level. The very top level floor and the very last part of the defense of the castle where the possible last man standing would be, that was the Lord's Chambers. This was the safest point in the keep and for that reason, that was where the Lord himself would reside. This floor would be topped off by the roof. Guards could make their way onto the roof and usually a tower on each corner of the building where they could keep watch and fire projectiles down at enemies attacking below. The walls on the roof would have a walkway all the way around connecting the four towers to allow troops to move to wherever they were needed on the battlements. The stone keep could be set as a defense on its own, or it could be connected to a wall that enclosed an open courtyard area. The keep was the heart of the defense and was the last point that needed to be taken by an invading army. Around the same time, architects also experimented with shell keeps, which were usually circular in nature and replaced the mott on the previous era's mott and baileys such as the castle Restormel in Cromwell, England. Another form of structure was the polygonal keep. They were designed with many different sides facing outward to prevent the defenders from having any blind spots against attackers. These polygonal structures were built towards the end of the 12th century and onwards. A good example of this type of fortification is Orford Castle in Suffolk, England. Other innovations began to appear with different aspects of the newer stone castles. The top of the walls and tower of the pass had been a flat wall based on the old style of the wooden palisade. Engineers discovered that this made it difficult for the archers and soldiers on the walls to fire down at the enemy without exposing themselves to the return fire. 
To remedy this, the top of the walls began to implement a structure where squares were cut out of the top and then alternated with solid squares so that a man standing in one of the open positions could fire down on an enemy unimpeded. If you were to draw a typical everyday saw facing upwards, they have the wooden handle on the left and then the metal blade reaching outward toward the right with the grooved teeth facing up, this is pretty much how the top of the walls were designed just as the metal teeth facing upward on the saw appeared. The spaces in between left an area open to fire a bow, and the stones jutting up were like the teeth in our saw example and offered a point to take cover behind when there was return fire. The new type of structure was called crenellated walls. The open points in the wall were called the embrasures, and the solid parts from on top of the wall were called the merlins. Not Merlin, the wizard from the tale of King Arthur and Camelot and all that, but Merlin spelled M-E-R-L-O-N. Several other advancements with the walls occurred as well that we were going to get into in a little bit. An interesting note on the crenellated walls is that during the later periods when individuals and entrepreneurs became wealthy, there became a fashion statement of copying the old medieval style buildings with the crenellated walls. Who didn't want to feel like a lord in his castle, right? To copy this feeling of being a lord, Later mansions and structures copied the design of having the top of the wall crenellated and put a form of the crenellated facade along the top of their structure. It gave a very distinct look to the structure and became a type of fashion statement, even though the design was just for show. Normal castles would have a platform walkway behind the crenellated wall for the troops to use for mobility and firing down on the enemies below. The later mansions... They just had the crenellated carvings there on the top of the structure, and if you viewed it from behind, you could see that there was nothing on the other side to reach the area. It was just for show. But it did, and does, look pretty cool. An example of this would be Ford Abbey in England. Back in the medieval times, the crenellated walls were also called battlements. History always likes to have multiple names for the same objects. The raised and protected walkways along the walls were called by a few different names. Chemins de Ronde, the clearly French term, which I think is actually pronounced Chemin de Ronde. Allure, spelled A-L-U-R-E. And then Allure, spelled with two L's. And my favorite, because, well, I think you can see why, the wall walk. This structural asset enabled soldiers to run from one end of the wall to the other and to wherever their fortification was being attacked. It also allowed the men in towers to exit the towers and reinforce different sections of the wall. This is what changed the wall from being a static obstacle in the way of the attacker to a defensible position for the garrison. Any point along the wall that was being attacked would be accessible from the top of the wall by the defenders. The defenders could then more easily attack the enemy behind the protective battlements aligning the top of their wall. It became a very strategic and fortified position. In the beginning, stone walls, towers, and keeps had a very few direct openings to the outside and were mostly fully enclosed with stone. The first of what would be called windows that were used were constructed primarily for ventilation or to allow sunlight to enter the structure. They did not have a specific use in the defense of the tower and usually had strong iron bars across the open space to prevent anyone from being able to enter through the opening. This changed when castles moved in a direction to take two of the most successful defensive weapons of medieval times, the bow and arrow and the crossbow, and designed the structures with openings specifically designed for these weapons to fire on the helpless victims below. Narrow rectangular openings placed vertically in the walls and towers were carved from an inside area to the outside to enable bowmen to launch missiles at the enemy, while only offering an 
incredibly small target for the enemy to return fire and possibly hit the defender. The defending bowman would be inside the structure and was able to fire out in any direction in a field of view that expanded out like from the top point of a triangle to the bottom flat base of a triangle. The attacker could really only fire directly into the opening by having an archer or slinger fire from dead in front of the aperture and even then it would be a pretty lucky shot. Looking at the architecture of the castles, you can see these defensive arrow loops all along the stone structure where they were accessible from the inside by passageways, stairwells, or rooms. I remember when I was little and looking at the castles and I always wondered, how come they didn't know how to make windows in those days? That little cut in the side of the structure could barely allow any light to come in. Of course, the true lethal purpose of the openings in the wall was unbeknownst to me. Keep in mind that many times the arrow loops were cut into a wall that was several feet thick. To allow the archer on the inside to have the greatest field of vision, the arrow loops would be cut from a narrow point on the outward facing part of the wall and then be flayed in and outward moving to the inside. The arrow loop would open up the further into the structure as it went in. Now from the other perspective, there would be a much larger rectangular opening in the inside that would continue to shrink as it made its way toward the narrow opening at the end of the wall. This allowed the bowman to create the angles he needed to fire out of the loop at the enemies on different sides. The bow was a weapon fired vertically and needed a bit of room for the bowman to function properly. By setting up the arrow loops in this manner, the bowman had what he needed to inflict the most damage on his enemy while still being offered a protected position. He could move around from left to right on the inside and get that angle shooting out through the straight arrow loop and hitting his enemy. Observing the arrow loops across different castles, historians noticed that some of the structures had rough, unfinished stone along the outside of the arrow slot opening. The rough edges faced outwards and historians wondered if it was merely for aesthetics, if it was just to save money when building, or if it served some form of a specific purpose. Well, as in most cases with parts of the castle, the wall was designed in this particular pattern for a deliberate reason which historians were able to discover. After researching data about siege weapons, they came to a conclusion. The rough edges of the stone acted as a way to soften the impact of an enemy projectile slamming into the wall. Imagine a giant catapult hurling a boulder with all its force and fury at that wall. This particular area of the castle with the arrow loop would be weakened by the opening in the wall as it was not one continuous solid structure. It was discovered that if some of the stones had the rough edges pointing outward in the construction of the wall, it would help to dissipate the impact of that incoming boulder. The rough stones would be sticking out slightly from the rest of the even wall and would prevent the full force of the impact from hitting the wall directly in the weakened spot where the arrow loop was located. Pretty ingenious, huh? The increased surface area and uneven impact would significantly take away from the force of the enemy projectile. There was a term created to describe the additional fortification. This way of fortifying the castle was called bossing. Maybe because the defenders wanted to let the attackers know just who was in charge? Now the traditional arrow loop being one slender vertical opening in the wall was great for use by a man with a bow. But what about the defenders that had crossbows? The crossbow needed room to maneuver horizontally as it was basically a more powerfully charged bow set in a horizontal position. The way to aim was to move the bow along an X axis, that's the X that goes across, and to locate your target. 
Arrow loops took this into consideration and some were designed as a horizontal slit instead of a vertical one and others implemented both and were created as a cross like cut out of the wall. The crosslet loop design was also enhanced by placing circles at the end of each extension of the cross, the arms of the cross. There would be a circle directly at the end of those. And this, again, added greater flexibility for the men aiming outward from the fortified positions. They could have more range, more angles that they could peer out at. If you look at the top section of a castle wall, you might be wondering what those small square holes just below the battlements of the wall are doing there. A number of castles had this feature which can still be seen today on the ruins. The holes were meant to be filled with wooden beams that would offer support for a wooden shelter that was built over the top part of the wall. That is probably why the bright minds of the day decided to call them put log holes. The wooden structures were called hordes and were built when an attack was imminent and the defenders had time to prepare. Keep in mind that an invading army would have to be marching on foot or at a slow pace on horseback to reach their destination, all the while being in enemy territory. Defenders of a castle usually had an advance warning when an invading force was coming to besiege them. In peacetime, the hordes were removed and the top of the wall was left open. When the hordes were built, they usually included a ceiling decked with wet animal hides to prevent fire, and they also had similar arrow slits as the stone walls that were placed in the wooden structures for the same purpose. This wooden shelter now provided a fully enclosed, fully protected structure along the top of the walls. The hordes would also protrude out from the wall, which is why they needed the put log holes on the outside of the wall. In the hordes, defenders would have what is known as murder holes placed in the wooden floor outcropping from the wall. The murder holes would enable defenders to drop giant stones, boiling oil, heated sand that would get caught into the enemy's armor, or other incredibly hazardous materials onto the attackers that reached the base of the wall. Murder holes. You have to love some of the names and slang that was used to describe some of the contraptions that were used in this medieval period. The holes would be cut in regular intervals in the floor of the outcropping and would give a direct line of sight to the bottom of the wall. Previously, if attackers made it to the base of the wall, it would be hard for the defenders to offer direct fire on them without exposing themselves on the top of the wall, reaching out, you know, to try and get the correct angle. Castles that also had the plinth or area at the bottom of the wall that was increased in width helped any items that were dropped from the hordes to bounce off the wall and be propelled into the oncoming foes. As castles became more advanced, many added stone overhangs to the standard castle wall called machinations that would allow the murder holes to be built into the stone structure itself. This enabled a more permanent structure that was not as susceptible to fire. Some restored castles maintained the wooden hordes that were used during wartime to enable tourists to see the grand nature of the designs. A good example of this would be Carcassonne in France, which has the wooden structures built along some of its walls and towers. It is also a mightily epic castle if you want to look at some pictures of it. One of the most effective methods for an offensive force to destroy a wall was to use the technique of mining. A tunnel would start far back from the wall where it was protected from missile fire from the battlements and miners would then chip away and excavate the earth in an underground tunnel that would make its way forward and under the defender's wall. The technique had been around for a long time but became even more prevalent during the Middle Ages when the defensive systems of castles greatly increase and a frontal assault would want to be avoided if at all possible due to the high casualties that would be sustained. In the story of Herodotus in around the year 510 BC, 
There was an account of the techniques of mining being used. Here is a little excerpt. The Persians besieged Barca for nine months in the course of which they dug several mines from their own lines to the walls, and likewise made a number of vigorous assaults. But the mines were discovered by a man who was a worker in brass, who went with a brazen shield all around the fortress and laid it on the ground inside the city. In other places, the shield, when laid down, was quite dumb, but where the ground was undermined, there the brass shield rung. Here, therefore, the Barsians countermined and slew the Persian diggers. In this passage, we are also enlightened as to one of the primary methods that the defenders of the castle would use to stop the mining technique that would take down their walls. They would countermine from inside the castle outwards in the direction of the attackers until they ran into the enemy mine underground. As we saw in the passage, the trick was to actually find where the location was where the enemy was digging under your wall. While the brass shield worked well in ancient times, Medieval castles may not have had a brass shields laying around, but they did have pans of water readily available. What they used to do was fill the pans or bowls with water and place them along the ground in low positions around the castle. If enemy miners were chipping away at the ground underneath with pickaxes, it would cause minute vibrations in the ground that a person would normally not be able to pick up. The pans filled with water, however, would feel the vibrations and would form ripples informing the defenders that someone was mining close by in that area. The attacking miners, who were also known as sappers, had the objective to take down a section of the heavily fortified stone wall. Once the wall collapsed, it offered an entry point for men-at-arms to charge into the castle. As they were digging, the walls of the mine would be held up from collapsing by placing wooden beams against the ceiling and with wooden columns braced into the lower part of the tunnel to support them. If a tunnel was just dug into the ground and towards the enemy position without the support beams, the weight of the dirt above would collapse into the mine, killing all of the men inside. The miners of the day had to estimate how far they had to dig to make it under the wall based on how far away they had started from the castle where they could see it from above land. Now keep in mind, they're underground here and they have no idea they're digging in the dark underground. They don't know how far they've gone. Once they felt they were under the wall or past it, straw, timber, and other flammable materials would be packed all the way into the end of the tunnel. The incendiary debris would then usually have an animal fat or pitch thrown onto it, which would make the items combust at a quicker and higher temperature. Just like uh, throwing lighter fluid onto a charcoal grill today. The sappers would evacuate the mine and the end of the mine would be set on fire. The extreme temperatures caused by the combustibles in the confined area would either set the wooden beams holding the mine together ablaze or would cause them to crack. Once the support system was removed, the dirt from the roof of the mine would just cave in, and if a stone wall had been placed above it, the foundation of the wall would give out and an entire section of the wall would be re reduced to rubble as it came crashing down. The rubble would give an easy access point to the attackers now ready to rush in. The effectiveness of mining was one of the castle's worst enemies. It was just hard to stop. There was not really a, a simple way to stop it, and it resulted in a total breach of the castle's defenses. In some situations, smoke or flooding could be used to render the enemy mine useless. In others, foot soldiers would enter the countermine once it had met with the enemy and fight hand-to-hand -hand with the enemy in the dark tunnels driving them back and destroying the mine. To help prevent the defenders from becoming aware of the tunnels inching closer to their walls, some besiegers first dug the tunnels straight down to the point where vibrations would not be noticeable on the surface. 
This, however, was a significant undertaking and greatly added to the amount of work that had to be done on the mine. One of the best features a castle had to prevent an enemy from mining to the walls was constructing a moat around the outline of the castle wall, which the enemy couldn't undermine without the risk of the mine itself flooding with the water from the moat. All of the innovations that were continually evolving the stone castles resulted in the epitome of the castle building design of the medieval period. This was known as the concentric castle. The basic premise was multiple layers of defense that could act independently of one another and offer support to other sections of the castle. Multiple layers of the walls were created surrounding the central keep. Each layer inwards could be constructed at a higher level than the more outer layer. This enabled blanketing fire from the wall behind it if there was an area on the first wall that was breached or had an enemy take control and allowed unobstructed missile fire from a more secure position in the castle onto an advancing enemy. Any enemy that was able to make it through the outer wall would find themselves yet again facing another formidable wall in front of them after they had already sustained significant losses trying to breach that first section. The entranceway to the castle started off as one of the weakest points in a fortification. There was a great big opening for troops, supplies, and animals to enter into the castle. But before a battle, this entranceway would have to be sealed, and unlike the solid stone walls around it, it would eventually have to be opened up again, and this would allow access to the normal throughfare of the castle. All the countryside, all the friendly forces to come and go as they needed. From the beginning, garrisons found ways to reinforce this area as much as possible. By the later years, many castles had gatehouses that were basically structures in and of themselves. A typical gatehouse was a rectangular structure made of stone that would be built into the standard walls of this castle, usually flanked by two towers on either side. A tunnel through the stone would be created to allow movement in and out of the castle. The tunnel would create an inwardly moving archway of stone that would support the rest of the gatehouse on top of it. The gatehouse was usually an area that was inherently vulnerable because it was already used as an entranceway to the castle. Some of the concentric castles started to build multiple gatehouses in each layer of outlying walls, making it substantially harder to breach all the way through the sections to the deep inners of the castle and to the keep. Carfilly Castle in Wales, built around the year 1270, had several gatehouses and was a sight to behold. There were two gatehouses on either end as the basic entranceways to the castle. On one side of the castle, there was a moat formed by a small peninsula of land that jutted out from the mainland. The peninsula of earth helped dam the water in a nearby lake and form a nice moat protecting the side of the castle. On top of the peninsula was constructed yet another strong gatehouse attached to a defensive wall protecting the stretch of land that the peninsula formed. Getting past this first layer of defense of the peninsula and gatehouse would only lead the attackers to the moat. The defenders would then have a drawbridge that would be drawn up from the castle where it had been bridging the moat and leave the enemy with a watery crossing ahead of them. The attacking force would have to devise a way to cross the watery channel to even begin the real assault. Most moats from this time period were 3 to 30 feet deep and up to 12 feet wide. The room created above could hold the mechanical workings for a drawbridge if one was in use at the castle and provided an area for the troops to garrison and attack the enemy. The top of the tunnel, which would be the floor of the room above, would be littered with murder holes for the defenders to drop down projectiles and any attackers that try to push towards the end of the tunnel. They would come in thinking, oh, you know, I'm good, I'm in here, I'm fine, and then the murder holes would stop dropping stuff all over them. 
On the inside of the stone walls along the side of the tunnel, there would also be arrow loops for the defenders in the wall to launch arrows and crossbows at the enemy at point-blank range. At the end of the tunnel, right before you actually entered the castle, there would be a huge strong wooden door that could be securely barred from the inside of the castle. The door itself was usually fortified with iron straps laid atop the wood to give it extra strength. If you were an attacking men-at-arms in the middle of the tunnel with a closed door in front of you, you were in a pretty terrifying position. You would be attacked from at least two sides by missile fire, the arrow slits in the walls on your right and left. If you happened to look up, you had a chance to see a heavy stone or burning debris dropped on you and the comrades around you from the murder holes in the floor above. In case your nerves started to get to the best of you at this point, you could try and run back out of the tunnel toward the entranceway from where you had come. But of course, by this time a large group of you and your men had now entered into the lengthway of the tunnel. If your plan was to try and run back out again, the defenders had yet another treat for you. A heavy wooden grill with iron casing would come crashing down from the structure above at the entrance of the gatehouse tunnel where you had first entered. Iron tipped spikes on the bottom of the grill would crush anyone beneath them from the weight and the force of the heavy grill crashing down. As you now stand trapped between the solid wooden doors on one side that you had tried to escape and the grill that came crashing down in front of you sealing your way out, crushing your comrades as they tried to escape, you found yourself discovering another significant defense of the castle, the portcullis. The portcullis, depending on where it was built and the time period was usually constructed of wood, metal, or wood reinforced with metal. Vertical slots or grooves built into the sides of the walls allowed the gate to be dropped down and guided into the correct location. The stone walls would support one side of the grill if the attackers tried to push against it. The grooves in the walls meant that it couldn't be pushed up and outward, similar to how a doggy door in a modern house would work, where the bottom flips up and the little doggy can push his way inside. Ropes and pulleys would support the lifting and closing of the portcullis. These tools would also usually be assisted by counterweights to offset the extreme weight of the heavy reinforced grill. The devices operating the portcullis would be tucked away inside the wall or in the room above the entranceway tunnel where the attackers could not gain easy access. As in the example we spoke of previously, the gate could quickly and suddenly be dropped down to trap an enemy by hitting a quick release device. This would remove the counterweights and let the grill come crashing down from the top of the entranceway into the ground. The importance and use of the medieval castle significantly declined over the 14th and 15th centuries with changing technologies and political systems. The introduction and increasing use of gunpowder in this time period meant that the defenders no longer felt quite as safe behind the masonry of the walls when powerful cannonballs could break right through them. The initial bombards or cannons that were used were not the most reliable sort and were really more terrifying to behold than actually a threat when faced in combat. As with any new technology, there was a testing phase to determine what would work best and this meant that many of the early cannons could be just as deadly to the men using them as the ones they were aiming at. Early devices would sometimes explode killing the men operating them. In the Hundred Years War, from 1446 to 1453, early cannons were used in France to attack the castle walls in western France. The cannons were slow and unreliable, could be overheated, and might even blow up in their owners' faces. Some castle walls were able to take the pounding from the earlier cannons, and they were just another early form of a siege engine similar to a catapult. For this reason, the castle was not immediately made obsolete by the introduction of gunpowder, but at the same time, it did put the writing on the wall for the typical medieval castle. 
Another change that led to castles being used less and less was that the economic and political systems were changing from the feudalism model that had been prevalent in the medieval period to a new model during the era of the Renaissance. Kings became more powerful and governments became more centralized. The lords and barons that completely controlled territories found themselves more subservient to the monarch and less at equal with other powerful barons around their area. The kings would also not approve of significant castles being built that if the lord suddenly turned against them could fortify and hold out in case of a civil war. As monarchies and dictatorships grew along with the size of European cities that were centers of commerce and a tax base, the kings no longer needed small fiefdoms managed by barons. Instead of calling upon the wealth of the barons, they could now take in the wealth from the commerce of cities and the rising merchant class to pay for their own professional army to defend their realm. The castle in one form or another continued to be used into the 17th century, but designs and alterations continued to be made as cannons became more powerful. In the 17th century and onwards, a new type of defensive structure was built from the ground up with the idea of being bombarded by cannons and artillery. These forts were sometimes star-shaped to cause cannonballs to slide off at an angle and not put the full force of the impact into the wall. They also had many earthen works built into the structure and carried their own positions where cannons could be fired. But this is a story for another time. Our story of the medieval castle comes to an end around the 15th century. The castle had dominated the landscape of strategic territories for around a thousand years from the time of the 500s AD to the year 1500. It started with the fall of the Western Roman Empire and ended in around the time of the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire with the sacking of Constantinople in the year 1453 when the Ottoman Empire was able to besiege and then gain control of the city of Constantinople. Many castles still serve some purpose over the years and many have survived even until today and been turned into museums. Some castles such as the Tower of London were used as prisons in later years with their cold and gloomy quarters. Others were used as administrative bureaus or archives. Dover Castle in England was even used in World War II as an observation post and had military personnel stationed in the tunnels underneath the castle during the war. The evacuation plan for the English forces trapped in Dunkirk was actually hatched in these underground tunnels beneath the castle by Admiral Sir Bertram Holm Ramsey. Today, the leading allure of the castle is as a tourist attraction and many of the sites have catered to support tourists with historical artifacts and individuals dressed in the costumes of the times. I would encourage anyone that is traveling and has a chance to stop by one of these wonderfully engineered structures to do so and take some time to see them with your own eyes and learn more about their significance in history. Thank you for listening. This concludes our Medieval Castle series. If you'd like to help out the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review to spread the word. The content takes a significant amount of time and effort to create, and your support would be greatly appreciated. Over on our website, sparkhistory.com, we have also included show notes and images if you are looking for related information on the Medieval Castle series. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to gain access to new shows as they are released. Thank you for listening to the Spark History Show and have an amazing day.